Ben Lee has been in quarantine for 10 days, which means that he and I, Max Quinn, hello, have been talking about everything for more than 300 minutes. That's five hours. Today, finally, the big question. What happens when you die? I'm being completely serious. We're digging into Ben's work as a death midwife and how it changed him as a performer. We also talk about the beautiful Christian Lee Hudson record that Ben put me onto and compare notes on the band and the Bens. Oh, and there's a second big question, just for good measure. That's the first thing you'll hear us talk about right now on Ben Lee in Quarantine. Hello, Ben. Hey, mate. Ben, how many people are allowed to wear a hat on stage in the one band? What do you think the rules are? Oh, my God. That is a really, that is a, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, you could look at, there's probably bands like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers where you'd see like six, seven hats on stage at the I same time. I looked this up. This is one of the bands yeah, that I you? thought would have hats in it. So, I, uh-huh. okay, so. Well, you know Mike Campbell has that hat. Mike Campbell's Mike the Campbell's hat guy, guy, right? So yeah, yeah, outside yeah, yeah. of that, sometimes you'll catch Tom Petty in a hat. The rest of the time, yeah. nary a hat on a nog, Ben. Like, oh, So what do you reckon? So one or two hats on the max? I think there has to be some sort of ratio where if you've got four members, you're probably only allowed one hat. Yeah. Like Traveling Wilburys, Highwaymen, all only single hat bands, Grateful Dead. Sometimes you might get as, as many as two hats. The exception to the rule mm. is the band. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I knew that I liked them. And it's no coincidence, I think, that you'll find a hat quotient of around like 60% or higher across all of their most famous press images. Do you know what else? I, I've been thinking about this. Like, it started me down this path of Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson and like this beautiful band that I really, really love. I think that they are one of the bands who, when you listen to live recordings of the band, their recordings feel live. You can hear them listening to each other. Do you think that that's true? For the band? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the nature of recording used to be that that was sort of the only way to do it. Um, You had no option other than to get really good at your instrument and then be able to play with other people and sing in harmony and and you know it's it the evolution of recording is incredible like particularly when you get into like home recording and the low entry barrier the cost entry barrier that that's created to get mm. sort of these weird you get these geniuses who have um got logic or garage band and are creating this wild music um but so, there is something to be said for that old school ability to sit and pay, play music with people and to do it to do it as a whole performance and mm. play the whole song through or sing the whole song through like i definitely have respect for that ability and that craft do you want to do home recording chat real quick like what's your yeah, what's your setup yeah. like and how open are you to like <laughs> the proliferation of quantizing in modern music yeah i i generally i've been through different phases i look at Pro Tools as basically a much higher functioning and easier to edit tape machine. 
Yeah. So with the exception of, like, I have a few sound banks that I like and use, but they're essentially organic instrumentation. Mm. The things that would like, like a certain bell that the amount of space it takes up sitting in a little home studio versus how often you use it doesn't make sense. So like I have one I love called the um, Acoustic Toy Instrument Museum. Oh, cute. And um, the TV show I scored, I use that on almost every single cue. I just love it. But basically, I mic things up and I record them. Yeah. And I I sort of look at... uh, No, I'll definitely like... I'll make loops and I'll play with filters and put effects on things after and reverbs and all that. But But I don't go... I just realized like from once I started like being around people that were good at like MIDI and soft synths and all the variety of those sounds... I realized that there were always going to be people that are happy to help you do that. Yeah. Who have the skills to do it better than I do. So I rely on I rely on collaborators for a lot of technical things like that. My friend Gab is like that, who I think you might know too, Japanese wallpaper. Oh yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Just one of the most brilliant people at soft sense and understanding engineering. And even when I was building the theme song for this very podcast. I was reaching out to Gab and I was like, hey, do you have you any weird like kick drum or toy piano sounds? And he was like, here you go. Uh, yeah, it, again, one of those things where I have no doubt that um, the, the listening just happens in a different way, you know? And I think that that's one of the cool things about modern music. That's true. I mean, I, I look at recording. Um, one of the things that's happened with recording because of all these all this MIDI work is what it takes to get a perfect quote unquote sound. Mm. It takes it takes much less, right? Like what Fleetwood Mac had to go through to do rumors and to get those drum sounds and those guitar sounds, yeah. th- you, they can be done in an instant now. So again, I, I think a lot of this comes down to assessing what are your strengths. And um for me, I realized that I I didn't, I'd never had, I've never, for instance, had a soundproof room to do, to make records in at home. Yep. So I more take the attitude that little noises and little sounds, and I learned this a lot from Brad Wood, who I worked with from Grandpa Wood on, made several records with him. Um, He loved the sounds that drummers would make with their mouths while they were (laughs) drumming. And so he would drum and he'd be like, yeah, and breathing and stuff because it added something. I think he got that really a lot from like the Stones um, because those moments when you can hear like Charlie Watts making sounds or something, they're yeah. just so they're so alive. So so I kind of have always leaned into, you know, with the exception of like if there's someone mowing the lawn, I'll wait <laughs> until it's done. But if there's birds chirping or water running in the house, or even like I've I've got this new song where you can hear my wife uh right before I start the track, like saying, Sounds good. Like about <laughs> something I just played it. And, and I actually I really like part of coming from DIY is like, I really lean into all those things. Like I really, I like them. I think so too. I think it um, lends to the feeling that, um, that what you're doing is organic and natural. And I kind of like the same thing about the Christian Lee Hudson record, which I listened to. Oh, have you gotten into it? Yeah. It's really good. It's really good. I, I also had a couple of listeners get in touch and say, what do you mean you haven't heard it? It's so good. And so I was very yeah. compelled straight away to be like, okay, cool. I've really got to dive in on what this man is all about. Well, he's actually, he's toured Australia. I think he's friends with Julia Jacqueline. Oh, right. Um, cool. And she maybe had him open or something. Mm-hmm. But um, but so so he's got a connection to Australia. But I, I just, 
Yeah, I was just really blown away by the songwriting on it. Yeah, the two big things that really stood out to me were the way that he harmonizes the melody, right? It felt like James Taylor or Randy Newman or something like that, you know, um, Joni Mitchell, where every step you can kind of hear the chord change and the way that the chords fall around the notes of the melody, which is, I think it's a skill in and of itself. Do you agree with that? Yes, I would. With Christian, um, it's interesting because one of the things I really like, um, obviously the melodies and the guitar playing are uh, incredible, but I also really like this character that he's created almost from like a literary perspective. Um, Yeah. Like I I delved, I've gotten to know him over the last several months, but I really got into the record before I got to know him. And it's almost to me feels like a like, it's kind of got like a bit of a Royal Tannenbaum's like waspy, sort of yeah. affluent upper middle upper middle class culture but like repressed emotionally a lot of obligations um, a lot of thank you notes um correct <laughs> present rapping uh, i just fa- I, I found like i invented this whole world and and to me my favorite songwriting is ones that draw me into a world whether it's real or imagined and i'm i'm really lost in this character you know so it's really um I just love that aspect. The of songs it. that really activate your imagination in that way and take you to yes. a place as well as just, you know, the, the liminal physical place that you're in. My favorite line on that record to that end is the one where he goes, uh, we were amateur psychologists and Morrissey apologists. Wait, wait, no, there's, there's amateur psychologists, serial monogamists, oh, Morrissey apologists, or the yeah, other way something around. Like that. We went, we, and then the fourth line is we went to different colleges. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing lyric too. That is a brilliant verse. Yeah, like the whole thing with that, just like it made my heart hurt in the best and most visceral yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. That song, Northsiders, is just yeah. killer. Do you find yeah. that you react really viscerally when you hear someone do something really good in a song? There's a lot of good craft out there. But this other level of providing you with an escape that you've been seeking and didn't even realize. Like the world, when you're thrust into the world of a song or an artist and you're like, oh, it's like like you stretch your arms out. You're like, it feels good in here. What is it? Even if it's full of suffering, it feels good to be in that space. And um, that is something that (laughs) it doesn't happen all the time, you know, and it's such a magical feeling when it does. And like, I mean, the quick and dirty way to get me there, and this is just because I'm a sucker for everything that my dad played me in the car growing up, which was the Beatles and mainly, but like uh, the straight up unexpected dominant chord to help you resolve your melody. That for me is like, I mean, you do it even like gamble everything for love. You got to be all right. (laughs) Like that's that where I just like, I get that little, I go to that place and it's cheap for me, but it's like every time I'm like, ah, I needed that. It's funny how, um, I mean, often you find this with, um, with the technical side of what's happening, like I'll feel something from music. And so I'll try and like reverse engineer it and like look up what the chord is or try and figure out what the bass is. Like there's something happening there, right? Like, and Mm. it's often incredibly simple. Like sometimes you'll have a dream about music that sounds so good and you're like, oh my God, it's magical. (laughs) And then you pick up a guitar and you're like, it's a G chord. (laughs) But... (laughs) I was talking to John Bryan about this recently and he was saying that um, his entire interest in making music stemmed from an emotional reaction he had to a certain chord 
when he was a child yeah. and it was in a specific song. And he, he took me, I, for, I forgot what it was now, but he took me over the piano and he was showing me how it was about taking the first out of a chord and putting it up on top. So you have like, say you have a major chord, you have the third, the fifth, and then the eighth, the eighth, whatever the it is. On you top. Know, it's like, and, um, yeah. and he just had this, like his body did something. When he heard that and it became, <laughs> he started, I guess he was playing me then um, Eternal Sunshine. The score he did for that was entirely based around that concept of these chords with the, the first right. note missing, the root note. And um, so it's just one of the just marvelous things that there are these crafts, these craft aspects that do have an implicit power, but then they connect with us individually based on some entirely other set of criteria that we don't understand which is like, why does that tug mm. our heartstrings? I don't know. But that one did for him. Yeah. yeah. Why does that it, work? Yeah, works. yeah. Oh, so yeah, I, I even remember having a chat with Ben Quella, actually. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know ben Quella, about this once. He told me this story about hearing, I think it was All You Need Is Love by the Beatles as a small child and being so overwhelmed that he started to cry and couldn't explain it. Yeah. Can we do it? Can we have this chat just quickly? Because... I adore this record and you were in the bends. Oh yeah, yeah. How fun was being in the bends? It was so good. It was funny how it um so for people who don't know, that's a side project I did with Ben Folds and Ben Quella. It was one of these moments that was so magical and to have three solo artists where it actually organically works to do something like that, like even just in your schedule, mm. is such a rare moment, this intersection. And one of the big almost heartbreaks that I think we all learned from that experience was how if you don't seize that moment, the window may not open again. Right. Because we did have this moment where the three of us, the alignment was there, the timing was there, and we had opportunity. And in different ways it didn't, um, the timing was so perfect for all of us. And, at, and then, But then to continue it, there was some, moments we would sort of tried to almost like we tried to control something right. that's uncontrollable and it, the window passed and we haven't ever been able to find the time energy moment to make it happen again mm. and it's almost like that experience was like a uh it was like i don't know it's weird because i don't want to be sort of capitalist about it and think the only thing that makes a project fully fulfilled is if you make lots of money or play to really big crowds or, you know, like, yeah. like in a way it's sort of capitalist to go, just keep it going because it's working, keep it going. Like <laughs> maybe that isn't the correct way to think about these things, but it did feel like we had an energy behind that collaboration that we could have done some more with. Was that the, um, the summer camp feeling that you were describing of like, let's all buy a house in the country together. Is that, is that sort of the thing that you're feeling at the moment? Yeah, it just clicked. Well, well now it's more like I'm very in reality about, you know, <laughs> it's just what it takes for collaboration to happen is mm. everyone has to show up with the right mindset and the right open creative channel, the right vulnerability. And that cannot, by definition of its specialness, it cannot happen every time you collaborate. I hear you, yeah. So I think I, I both, I mean, I have many collaborations. I've had collaborations like that happening now. But that one, I do have a nostalgia for 
because it was so unusual and so magical that I do have a bit like, wow, the energy from that, the magnetism around that particular project was very special. We've kind of been touching on these liminal spaces and the way that the the magic of those moments can make you feel. I told you I wanted to ask you about a different liminal space in this episode, and I think maybe now is a good time to switch gears. What do you think happens when you die, Ben? I don't. I, I have no idea. Um, my my psychedelic experiences have left me with a certain type of like um, just internal confidence in some kind of non-material experience, but that could also be a product of, you know, brain chemistry is material too. So I really don't have, um, Mm. I I don't have any well thought out or confident theory about it. I've been interested in the process of dying before, which that I feel like I have some understanding of, but as far as what happens after, I have no idea. Um, Mm. My experience, you know, I did this, uh, work this death midwifery and um, hospice volunteering and stuff. And it really came out of my work with psychedelics because I felt that when someone's having a psychedelic experience, there is actually very little you can do to help them. Mm. They are truly on their own in the sense that they are confronting incredibly intimate and incredibly personal feelings that they have about their existence, you know? Um, And I saw how the best kind of help was help that was given almost, it's almost like childbirth, like just support the person going through the process, but don't dictate how the process should be done. You're just there. Yeah. It's like giving someone, it's like giving someone in the city to surf. Like you see them bounding (laughs) along the street. You have two options. You can offer them water or denka rub. Right. That's it. Right. So you can do two things and you can cheer them on. That's nice too. But there's no way that you are going to be able to reduce the intense confrontation that person is having with their own limitations in that marathon or half marathon, whatever it is. Um, So I I sort of came to realize that there was a skill set that I was interested in acquiring, which was about how to bear witness to the journey of a friend or a partner or your audience or your Mm. kids without dictating it, like as a peer. To let it happen. To let it happen. And also I think this was part of my curiosity about moving away from gurus and things was realizing that like the best benefit here doesn't come from telling someone what to do. It comes from supporting them. Mm. And so uh, all of that work I did around death was – you know, it led to some funny, I mean, I had some interesting experience. Like I visit people who are in hospice. I played at someone's wake. I just played gentle, like guitar as well. Families came in and, and I, I, I realized that, um, when I stand on a stage and I play in front of an audience, I'm basically playing for a room of people who are dying. Hmm. It's, it's hopefully not going to happen during the show or even after, right after the show. But Fingers crossed. Yeah, but everyone's in the same process. And at the end of the day, when I'm playing a song, if I can take out the sort of – if I can take out the narrative that places me at the center of that experience, 
but remember that the audience is having an experience and I'm soundtracking that experience. Like in a sense, I'm playing the music to give birth to or the music to die to or the music to break up to or to have fun to, whatever it is. Like you're basically like soundtracking. You're soundtracking this intimate. Now, if people are not totally externalized, like if you're in a club and you're dancing, it's a little bit different because you're in a social maybe thing with another person. But if you're sitting or standing listening to music and you're simply having an internal experience, there is a lot going on inside you. And I think sometimes performers, I've often thought an audience were not giving me back enough. Oh, yeah. And then I'd meet them after and they'd have been deeply moved. But it's like, at what point did we begin to correlate the idea that if I feel moved, I need to then scream and applaud wildly? Like, it's it's a bit of a non sequitur, you know what I mean? So, so all of this was realizing, like, is there some way to embrace the role that music or performance or friendship or standing on a stage, to sort of reframe it and think of it as being a container for people to have these different experiences to? And death just seemed like the most overt and most sort of extreme example of that. So it was all part of me trying to figure this stuff out. When you think about it in that way, do you feel at all like like Mark Twain, Huck Finn, hanging from the rafters, watching your own funeral? Is that is that sort of the feeling? I guess. I mean, I'm generally not that aware of my own predicament. Like with the exception of like, <laughs> with the exception of like, if... I'm playing a show where, say, there's not many people there and I'm confronted with, sure. then I'm confronted with feelings about my career, say, right? But in general, if there's an audience there that are cooperative, I'm kind of thinking about the audience and I'm trying to like make it work for them. Yeah. And I'm going to do it by the way I do everything, like trying to enjoy myself and have fun. But I, I my own mortality, maybe it's something I should think more about on stage. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't think about it that much on stage. Yeah. How do you want to go? I'm not too sure about that, really. I mean, I again, I, I, I feel that I hope, my hope for my life is that it will increase in, my experiences will continue to uh, crescendo. You know, that, that my, my input and my output will be dynamic. Okay. So, so whatever it is, I, I don't view my own death as like a quiet petering out over decades. I, I view it as that I, um, you know, that I, uh, I hopefully will, I will be uh, still accumulating understanding and um, insight, mm. and I'll be able to share that in whatever, you know, um, whatever way my service is needed, I guess. I, I focus more on that. With a bang and not with a whimper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was opened up to to this concept this year uh, in this song called Fantasy Baseball at the End of the World that came out by uh, this singer, John K. Sampson. Do you know him? Oh, okay. No. Um, he used to be in this band called The Weaker Thans, Canadian band. He's just, I think, a brilliant thinker and if you look at his lyric sheets you know how uh you might read a lyric sheet and it will be line by line by line by line this man just writes a paragraph and works out where the rhymes fit in and it's really it's really interesting and the he's singing about trump in this song 
fantasy baseball at the end of the world. And he's like, um, if I wait long enough and the world doesn't end, he'll die like we all die in pain or asleep, which is the most accurate summation of the options that I have heard. And I think my choice is asleep. I guess you mean the exact moment. I thought you were sort of asking like, what's going on in my life when I die? How do I actually want to die? I, I, I don't really, I don't really care about that. Do you, so you, <laughs> you, you have strong thoughts about that. You want to die, you're worried about the pain? Or what, what is the... I think, I think I'm probably a bit scared of the pain. And I'm also, I'm more in love with the idea of simply holding hands with Danny and going off. Gotcha. So, okay. You know, I, think the, I think the romance of that is nicer. Yes. So I get it. So you want it to have some kind of like, it should have some kind of idealized quality to it. Like it should be romantic in some way. Yeah. Like a, yeah, like a romantic full stop, you know, Uh, that's, I think that's for me. If I'm, if I'm extremely lucky, it's what happened to my granddad, Bede. He pretty much the same woke up, was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit funny. Then uh, my, my grandma went up and, made him a, a cup of coffee and she came back and he was passed away. But then on the other side of things, my grandma Gwen, who was married to be years and years later, she was having pretty serious dementia. And I remember being in this room with her as she was passing away. And you know how like your, your grandparent is sort of supposed to say to something to the effect of like, I'm proud of you and you know, you've, you've, you've done well enough, like good luck, all this, all this stuff. My grandma looked me dead in the eyes and she was like, now listen, I never smoked. I never drank. I fucking should have. Wow. Now it's a complete lie because she smoked and drank all her life. Wow. But for me, that was like, shit, should I run down the Bentic shops and uh, get you a pack of cigarettes right now, grandma? How old were you when you heard that? 18. Wow. Yeah. It was a pretty moving and pretty impactful thing to hear at that time, but also knowing in the back of my mind that she was not entirely or at all aware of her own history at that point was like, it also made it a little bit fun. Yeah. Well, it's a very rebellious thing to say. I mean, it's a very, um, (laughs) it's an incredible, it's the gift of that story. The gift of that memory is, I mean, that will go down in your, like for generations. If you have kids, they have kids, they'll tell that story. Right, right. And um, that, that, that's a gift too. I mean, I look at some of the ways that my grandmother, who I was quite close to, the stories I remember of her was sort of like her being like stubborn or obstinate <laughs> to the point of comedy. Yeah. Um, and just the like, you know, she could be a real pain in the ass and that, I found that endearing. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, I find it endearing when people refuse to play the, like, <laughs> the role that they re- refuse to say the thing that they're meant to say. Right. You know, they just refuse to play that role exactly. But that's a gift. That is a gift because it's something that, as you say, gets passed down through the ages and gets handed into... Uh, engagement speeches and weddings yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know the whole thing i um totally. yeah it's been a weird one like my so my dad is my dad's best friend from the 1970s his daughter is my fiance oh wow yeah and les passed away 
uh, like eight, nine, ten years ago, and that's how Danny. Wait, and that's I met. her dad. That's her. Yeah, dad. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's how we met. So I oh, had wow. had no idea that this person exists, and now the beautiful complication of our lives is that in order for us to meet and have this wonderful flourishing thing that we have, she had to go through so much pain and tragedy and, you know, we're going to get engaged uh, or have a, have a party up in Ballina at the end of the year where I grew up. And it's going to be the first time that Danny's mum and that my parents have been in the same room since the, wow. the 1990s. And I, in the same way that we're talking about, I can't kind of can't wait to enter that space and see what it feels like. Yeah, well, there's something, I mean, I, we're going through it a lot at the moment. Um, there's something about, there, there was this philosopher I liked called Gurdjieff, um, G.I. Gurdjieff. I mean, he was also problematic too, but he, um, mm. he, uh, he believed that the only way a human being could change is through a shock. And basically that the entire act of coming to know ourselves is about taking like conscious shocks, like putting ourselves in situations where basically the space-time continuum and all the rules that we've lived by crumble in each moment. And so he would do things like he would actually up and move to countries when they were in political upheaval. Um, So like he'd do the opposite of what I just did. (laughs) (laughs) He'd be in Australia right now going, how do we migrate to America? Um, Because he sort of believed that these potent atmospheres that raise questions in us and create crises within us are the way that we transform ourselves. And Mm. when I think about that, about your story with your future wife being so intimately connected to your family history and being willing to step into that strange vortex of karma and relationships. It's like, it changes you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the better, I hope. Yeah. 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 Ben, let's pick it up tomorrow. Okay. Sick. Right on, man. Bye. Thank you, buddy. Bye. Ben Lee in Quarantine is a collaboration between me, Max Quinn, and Ben Lee. I'm doing all the mixing and producing and editing and stuff. Sorry if you run into any pops or clicks or bung audio. I'm trying. Thank you to Ben. You can find him on the internet at Ben Lee Music. You can say hi to me at Max Quinn. We'll have another episode for you real soon. <laughs>